Chapter 14, Part 3 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Durrett. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnall Bury, Chapter 14, Part 3. Policy and Action of Thebes in Northern Greece The same year which saw the death of Jason of Ferrai saw the death of another potentate in the north, his neighbor and ally Amentus of Macedonia. We have seen how Amentus had to fight for his kingdom with the Chalcidian League, how he was driven out of his land and restored, and how the League was crushed by the power of Sparta. Both Jason and Amentus were succeeded by Anaxander. At Ferrai, the power first passed to Jason's brothers, of whom one murdered the other, and was in turn murdered by his victim's son, Alexander, <coughs> whose reign was worthy of its sanguinary inauguration. The Thessalonian cities refused to bow down to the supremacy of Ferrai, now that Ferrai had no man who was worthy to be obeyed, and to resist Alexander of Ferrai, they invoked the aid of Alexander of Macedonia. The aid was given, and Larissa, Crenon, and other cities passed under Macedonian sway. But this was not the purpose of the Thessalonians, to exchange a native for a foreign ruler, and accordingly they invoked the help of Thebes against both Alexanders alike. It was sound policy on the part of Thebes to accede to the request. It was impossible to discern yet what manner of man the successor of Jason might prove to be, and it was important from the Boeotian point of view to hinder the reunion of Thessaly under a monarch. The conduct of an expedition was entrusted to Pelopidas, who brought Larissa and other towns in the northern part of Thessaly under a Theban protectorate. At the same time, the Thessalonians sought to strengthen their position by a federal union a political experiment which had been tried in Thessaly before. The little we know of the League which was established about this time suggests rather the revival of an old system than a new creation. The country was divided into four political divisions corresponding to the old geographical districts at the head of each was a polemarch who had officers of horse and foot under him, and at the head of the league was an archon 
elected, if not for life, at least for longer than a year. Thus, the organization was military. But there are indications that it grew out of an old amphitionic association. There is no reason to think that Lelopidus had more to do with the establishment of the Thessalian Federation than Epaminondas with that of the Pan-Arcadian League. The part of Thebes, in either case, was simply to support and confirm. Macedonia offered no obstacles to the operations of Pelopidus in Thessaly, for it was involved in a domestic struggle. One of the nobles, Ptolemy of Valorus, rebelled against the king and was supported by the king's unnatural mother, Eurydice. The two parties called upon Pelopidus to educate between them, and he patched up a temporary arrangement and concluded a Theban alliance with Macedonia. Hardly had he turned his back when Ptolemy murdered Alexander and married Eurydice. But it seems as if the paramours would not be permitted to reap the profits of their crime. Another pretender to the throne had gathered an army of mercenaries and occupied all the land along the Chalcidian frontier. Help, however, was at hand. An Athenian fleet was cruising in the Thermaic Gulf under the command of Iphicrates. The queen visited the admiral on the coast, accompanied by her two sons, Perdiccas and Philip, the brothers of Iphicrates, since he had been adopted as a son by Amentus, and persuaded him to help her in her need. By his exertions, the pretender was expelled, and a succession of Perdiccas was secured under the regency of Ptolemy. The interests of Athens on the Chalcidian and the adjacent coasts had forced that state to keep an ever-watchful eye on political events in Macedonia and to seek influence at the court of Agi. The intervention of Iphicrates was not the first case in which Athenian power had settled a dynastic, dynastic question. His settlement was more abiding than that of Pelopidas. We may conjecture that the opportune appearance of the Athenian fleet was due to the circumstance that Thebes had interfered. But Thebes was resolved to continue her interference and oust the Athenian influence. Pelopidas again dispatched to the north, compelled the regent, Ptolemy, to enter into alliance with Thebes and assure his fidelity by furnishing a number of hostages. Among the young Macedonian nobles who were sent as pledges to Thebes was the boy Philip, who was destined to be the maker of Macedonia and was now to be trained for the work in the military school of Boeotia under the eye 
uh, Epaminondas himself. Having thus brought Macedonia within the circle of the Theban supremacy, Pelopidas, on his way home, visited the camp of the despot of Ferrae, but he did not know that Alexander had become the ally of Athens, an inevitable combination, since it was the interest of both to oppose Theban expansions in the north. Supported by Athens, the despot could defy Thebes, and he detained his visitor Pelopidas as a hostage. A Boeotian army marched to rescue the captive, but an armament of a thousand men arrived by sea from Athens, and the invaders, who were commanded by incompetent generals, were outmaneuvered and forced to retreat. Epimenondas was serving as a common hoplite in the ranks, and but for his presence the army would have been lost. The soldiers unanimously invited him to take the command, and he skillfully extricated them from a dangerous position and managed their safe retreat. This exploit secured the re-election of Epaminondas as Boitach, and he immediately returned to Thessaly at the head of another army to deliver his friend. It was necessary to apply a compulsion severe enough to frighten the tyrant, but not so violent as to transport him with fury, which might be fatal to his prisoner. This was achieved by dexterous military operations, and Pelopidas was released in return for a month's truce. It seems probable that at the same time Epaminondas freed Pharsalus from the rule of Ferrai, but it was not the interest of Thebes to overthrow the tyrant or even limit his authority to his own city. It was well that he should be there as a threat to the rest of Thessaly. It was well that Thessaly should be unable to dispense with Theban protection. The power of Alexander extended over Phthortis and Magnesia and along the shores of the Pacassian Bay and to neighboring towns like Scotussa. His tyranny and brutality seem to have been extreme, though the anecdotes of his cruelty cannot be implicitly trusted. We read that he buried men alive or sewed them up in the hides of wild beasts for his hounds to tear. We read that he massacred the inhabitants of two friendly cities. We read that he worshipped as a divine being the dagger with which he had slain his uncle and gave it the name of Sir Luck, an anecdote indicating a strain of madness which often attends the taste for cruelty. Excellently invented, if not true, is the story that having seen with dry eyes a performance of Troides of Euripides, a drama unutterably sad, the tyrant sent an apology to the actor, explaining 
that his apparent want of emotion was due to no defect in the acting, but to a feeling of shame that tears for the sorrows of Hecuba should fall from the eyes of one who had shown no pity for so many victims. It has been said that the chief desire of Athens at this time was to regain the finest jewel of her first empire, Amphipolis. The fleet under Iphicrates was cruising and watching with this purpose in view, but the hopes of success, which depended much on the goodwill of Macedonia, were lessened by the ties which Ptolemy had contracted with Thebes. And, besides losing Macedonian support, Athens was impeded by the cities of the Chalcidian League, who now broke away from the Athenian alliance and made a treaty with Amphipolis. Meanwhile, Athens began to act in the eastern Aegean. The opportunity was furnished by the revolt of her friend, Ariobanzanes, a satrap of Phrygia. It was the policy of Athens to help the satrap without breaking with the great king, from whom she still hoped to obtain a recognition of her claim to Amphipolis. A fleet of thirty galleys and eight thousand troops was sent under her other experienced general, Timotheus, and he accomplished more in the east than than Iphicrates had accomplished in the north. He laid siege to Samos, on which Persia had hands, contrary to the king's peace, and took it at the end of ten months. At the same time, he lent assistance to Ariobarzanes, who had to maintain himself against the satraps of Lydia and Caria, and as a reward for these services, Athens obtained the cession of two cities in the Thracian Chersonese, Sestos and Crithoth. Of these acquisitions, Sestos was of special value from its position on the Hellespont, securing to Athens control at this point over southern extremity. Thus Athens began to revive her old empire, but in Samos she revealed her designs even more clearly. This island was not treated as a subject ally, but was appropriated as Athenian territory. Outsettlers were sent from Athens to occupy Samos, and thus the system of clerarchies, which had been the most unpopular feature of the first confederacy, and had been expressly guarded against at the formation of the second confederacy, was renewed. It did not indeed violate the letter of the constitution of the League, which only bound Athens not to force out settlers upon members of the League, but it was distinctly a violation in spirit. The treatment of Samos showed Greece that Athens was bent 
on rising again to her old imperial position, while the second confederacy was based on the principle that she had renounced such pretensions forever. Delighted with the achievements of Timotheus, the Athenians appointed him to command the fleet, which had been operating for years on the Macedonian coast under Iphicrates, whose failure was strikingly contrasted with the success of Timotheus. It must be remembered that while Iphicrates was hindered by the hostility of the regent of Macedon, Timotheus was helped by the friendship of the satrap of Phrygia. But Timotheus possessed a diplomatic dexterity which Iphicrates never displayed, and now fortune favored the diplomatists. Shortly before his new appointment, the regent Ptolemy was assassinated by the young king Perdiccas, who thus avenged his brother Alexander. The change in the holders of power led to a change in policy. Macedonia freed itself from the influence of Thebes, and the young king sought the support of Athens. And so Timotheus, not only untrammeled by Macedonian opposition, but even aided by Macedonian auxiliaries, set about the reduction of towns around the Thermaic Gulf. He compelled Methon and Pydnia to join the Athenian confederacy, and in the Chalcidic Peninsula he made himself master of Potidaea and Tauron. The acquisition of these Chalcidic towns was valuable in itself, and Potidaea was occupied by Athenian outsettlers, but the main purpose of the general was to weaken the resources of Olynthus, which at the head of the Chalcidian states gave powerful support to its ally Amphipolis, the supreme object covered by Athens, whose rights to it had been recently recognized by the Persian king. A famous mercenary captain named Charidemus, who had previously served under Iphicrates, was now secured again by Timotheus. But two efforts to capture Amphipolis were repelled. The work of Brasidas was not destined to be undone. It was high time for Thebes to interfere. If the successes of Timotheus were allowed to continue, Athens would soon recover Euboea, and the adhesion of that island was, from its geographical position, of the highest importance to Boeotia. But in order to check the advance of her neighbor, it would be necessary for Thebes to grapple with her own, on her own element. By the advice of Epaminondas, in spite of the advice of Menecletus, it was resolved to create a navy and enter upon the career of a sea power. This was a momentous decision, which demanded a careful consideration of ways and means. Given the problem to break the power of Athens, there can be no question that Epaminondas advised the only possible method of solving it. 
but it might be well to consider whether its solution was a necessity for Thebes. The history of Boeotia had marked it out as a continental power, and it would have been wiser to consolidate its efforts, which could not be sustained by any but a great commercial state, and the cities of Boeotia had no trade. It was the natural antipathy of the two neighbors far more than any nature mature consideration of her interests that drove Boeotia to take this indiscreet step. Yet the step had immediate success. A hundred triremes were built and manned and sent to the Propontis under the Bogotarch Epaminondas. The sailing of this fleet was a blow to Athens, not from any victory that had gained, there was no battle, but from the support and encouragement which gave to those members of the Confederacy which were eager to break their bonds. The establishment of the clerics of Samos had created great discontent and apprehension among the Athenian allies, and they wanted only the support of a power like Thebes to throw off the federal yoke. Byzantium openly rebelled. Rhodes and Chaos negotiated with Epinondus, and even Chios, close to Attica itself, defied Athens. When the Theban fleet returned home, Chabrius recalled Chios to its allegiance, and a new act of treaty was drawn up. But a second rebellion had to be put down at Julis before the island acquiesced in Athenian sway. The expedition of Epinondus also served to support the enemies of Athens, who opposed her advance in the Chersonese, namely the free city of Cardia and the Thracian kings Cotes, who was aided by his son-in-law Iphicrates. This general, superseded by Timotheus, had not ventured to return to Athens, and now sided with her enemies. While the young Theban navy sent forth to oppose Athens in the Propontis, a Theban army had marched against the ally of Athens, Alexander of Ferrai, whose hand, strengthened by a mercenary force, had been heavy against the Thessalonians. Once more, but for the last time, Pelopidas entered Thessaly at the head of an army to assist the Federation. Before he left Thebes, the sun suffered an eclipse, and this celestial event, interpreted by the prophets as a sign of coming evil, cast a gloom over his departure. At Pharsalus he was joined by forces of the Thessalian League and immediately advanced against Ferrai itself. Alexander came forth to meet him with a large force, and it was a matter of great importance for the purpose of barring the Theban advance to occupy the heights known as Dog's Heads, on the road from Pharsalus to Ferrai. The armies reached a critical spot nearly at the same time, and there was a rush for the crests. The Theban 
cavalry beat off the cavalry of the foe, but lost time in pursuing it, and in the meantime the infantry of Alexander seized the hills. In the battle which followed, the object of the Thebans was to drive the enemy from this position. Having been repeatedly repelled, Pelopidas, by a combined assault of horse and foot, at length won the summit and forced the enemy to give way. But in the moment of victory, the impetuous general espied the hated despot in whose dungeon he had languished, and yielding to an irresistible fit of passion, aggravated by the excitement of battle, he forgot the duties of a general and rushed against his enemy. Alexander withdrew into the mists of his gods, and Pelibidus, plunging desperately after him, was overwhelmed by numbers. It was even so that Cyrus threw away his victory at Cunaxa. The death of Pelopidas was not fatal to his followers, who routed the enemy with heavy loss, but it was a sore blow both to his own Thebes, of which he had been the deliverer and strong pillar, and to Thessaly, of which he had been the protector. In the following year an army was sent against Ferai, and avenged his death. Alexander was obliged to relinquish all his possessions except his own city and submit to the headship of Thebes. It was about this time that Thebes shocked the Hellenic world by the destruction of a venerable rival, the Minyan or Cominus, uh, some Theban cities induced the horsemen of Orcominus to join them in a plot to subvert the constitution. But the hearts of the principal conspirators failing them before the day of action came, they informed the Botox, the horsemen who were promptly seized and condemned to death, and the assembly passed a resolution to raise Orcominus and enslave its people. The Thebans rejoiced at a fair pretext to wreck hatred of ages upon their unhappy neighbor. They marched forth and executed the doom. The men were slain because they resisted. The rest of the folk were enslaved. It was a deed on which Greece cried shame, and if the moderate and humane Biotak, who was then in the Hellespontine regions, had been present to control the councils of his country, it would possibly never have been committed. End of chapter 14, part 3, recording by Dick Durrett, Manchester, New Hampshire.